Hey everybody, Randy here. Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank one of our sponsors. That is Precision Pro Golf. There's been a lot of talk about rangefinders over the last several weeks, but this may be the biggest news yet. Precision Pro Golf is proud to announce the launch of the smartest, most personalized rangefinder ever, the R1 Smart Rangefinder, available for limited pre-order at precisionprogolf.com. That's precisionprogolf.com. The R1 Smart Rangefinder is the rangefinder reinvented, combining the functions of laser, GPS, and cell phone all onto one device. At its core, the R1 Smart Rangefinder is a premier rangefinder. And once you pair it to the powerful Precision Pro app on your smartphone, the R1 helps golfers see the course in a completely new way. It features slope-adjusted distances, GPS distance to the front, center, and back of the green, wind assist which measures the effect the wind will have on each shot it's got a find my precision pro function which alerts you when the rangefinder has been left behind meaning you'll never lose your rangefinder again and the most innovative feature to the r1 smart rangefinder is precision pros game-changing new my slope technology my slope creates a customized measurement that's specific to you and your environment by combining a golfer's unique ball data with real-time weather data So that means a golfer's launch angle, ball speed, spin rate are combined with the temperature, altitude, and humidity to create a distance that's tailored to you and no one else. Because if it isn't personalized, it isn't precise. The R1 Smart Rangefinder, the Rangefinder Reinvented, is available for limited pre-order at precisionprogolf.com. Get over there today because inventory is limited. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. And now on to today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Trap Draw podcast. This is part two of A Course Called America podcast series, discussion series. I haven't settled on on a good name for it yet. Uh, But of course, joined by Mr. Tom Coyne, newly minted. Tell me how this feels. Newly minted New York Times bestselling author. How about that? How about it? Um, Big thanks to you, my man. I mean, there's no... uh your support. Well, let's start. I mean, we talked about it last time. You're on the book jacket. You're in the book. You come to the book party. Um, and, you know, you decide to feature the book on the trap draw. So that sold a lot of books um, in the first. It's funny, like, so, you know, my other books, it, it, I don't want to make it feel like, because they say New York Times bestseller on them as well. And Ireland and Scotland. So I don't want it to feel like the like that was a, a stun or untrue. But what happened with those books is the New York Times has monthly lists, right? So, and those would be for more specific categories. So they're, they used, and in fact, they don't even do this category anymore, but they would have the category sports and leisure. And that's where, um, you know, my books had, had, had made that list in the past. Um, 
but to actually, and so what happened is they got rid of a lot of the monthly lists, like, you know, I don't know, the cooking and di different kinds of things. They might still have whatever, but they weren't doing sports anymore. And when I found that out, I remember, you know, it was, you know, before a few months before the book came out, it was kind of like, it kind of took the wind out of my sails a little bit because that was something that you could like shoot for um, to say, all right, if I can make the sports list, that would be, that would be wonderful. We could put bestseller on the book jacket again, and that would be great. I would have to make the nonfiction list, which for a golf book does not have, I'm not, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn or be immodest. It just, just doesn't generally happen. Right. Because that list is, Bill O'Reilly and Oprah and Barack Obama and, you know, <laughs> political books and, you know, mega books, right. Where people were paid billions of millions of dollars to, to write these books. So, um, you know, I heard there wasn't a sports list and I said, ah, oh, that, that stinks. And my editor was like, oh, well maybe I'll make a nonfiction list and that he was kind of like, but you know, you, pr you probably won't. <laughs> so, you know, tempering my expectations. I'm like, I, I, I get it. I know. I know. Um, but the pre-orders were really good. And I remember like, you know, thanks a lot to social media. Thanks to yourself and folks who have good, you know, um, can get the word out on social media. You know, the, uh, the pre-orders were really good. And, and my editor was saying, you know, let's, let's look at this. I think we can, this, this actually has a shot. Um, so, you know, we ramped up as much marketing as we could going into that opening week and um it was pretty emotional actually to get there because we knew like last wednesday it came out between the list comes out between like five and six o'clock the i knew that they were getting it at simon and schuster and um so i was sitting there texting my editor waiting to hear and um and then i, I was in a hotel i don't know where was i um and then I was somewhere Then I got distracted and my agents texted me. He's like, dude, jump on the zoom. And I'm like, what zoom? And I look <laughs> at my email and there's like a, there's a, there's an invite from my editor. He's like, everyone, please get on the zoom right now. And it was like, <clears throat> it was like a dozen people. It was everyone who'd worked on the book, people who I'd never seen their faces before. Oh, my copy awesome. editor, yeah. marketing people, publicists, like my, and my agent and my editor and um, who were all there just like cheering and like saying congratulations and like it really like hit me i'm like wow this is actually this is a big deal and it's also um like this book was made by all these people and and this all we all did this together and i don't know it was i don't know as a writer you sit in this room and you bang away and people tell you thumbs up or thumbs down and, and i don't know it's the, not that it's a depressing or lonely thing but there's just you're not you don't feel like always that you're like on a team and i'm suddenly i was like on a team and we did good and i felt like it was actually it was a little bit overwhelming it felt really really cool that's that's really wonderful to hear um and, and i can just say from you know talking to you a little bit about the book process and i guess some of the other interviews i've done um i feel like i do start to have a little bit of appreciation for just how many people and how many sets of eyeballs and how many touch points there are along the way from you writing a draft and even starting before that, but right. Like by the time you have a draft completed to a final product. Uh, so that's what, what, what a great celebration. Well-earned for, for you and the team. That's really cool to hear. Yeah, it was cool. Um, I mentioned this is of course, I'll, I'll jump in here. If folks have not listened to episode one, um, I would say, 
do so. <laughs> it sets the stage and, and lays the groundwork for for the book. And certainly if people don't have the book yet, uh, of course you're free to listen, but I would say, you know, just hit pause, hit stop, get your hands on the book, start reading, and then come back to these podcasts. That's that's the beauty of podcasts. They'll be here waiting for you. So I guess without further ado, what today's discussion we'll focus on is about roughly the first half of the book. Um, I cut it off somewhat arbitrarily at page 194. So pretty much the, um, I want to ask you about some material between pages one and, and 194. So before we do get into that, I do want to say that the book launch party in Philadelphia was such a fun event. Uh, kudos to you. Kudos to Aaron Gregory. Um, Aaron the, the, crushed it. And I know she's listening. Aaron, uh, you're awesome. She she planned the event. She's who we work with to plan our events. She is uh she is just awesome. So um yeah. I, I want to tell you, getting to see you in that environment, uh getting to meet your wife and kids, being at Rolling Green, seeing your folks, it, it just was very special and something I want to thank you. And I guess, you know, a, a privilege for me to be there. Uh, I think the highlight for me, Tom, was your book reading. What a treat. And I must say, you, you when that microphone goes on, man, you, you turn it on and you have a smoothness and a professionalism about you. You can tell not your first rodeo. So oh, thanks, man. No, of that course. was, I was nervous. Like I, um, cause the day was so busy that, I kind of forgot like, okay, I've got a, I had, I know I had like my thank yous and but I'm like, Oh, I got to read something. And, and I, I knew, I knew what I wanted to read, but I just, it kind of snuck up on me and suddenly I got, I'm not usually nervous. Um, I've gotten over like the nerves around public speaking, but I was, I was actually, I was pretty nervous standing up there and then especially looking out and like knowing everybody, but it was the only time in the party where I looked out and I'm like, Holy crap look at all the people that are here. Like I didn't get to talk to so many people, but I wanted to be like, dude, you're here and you're here. Oh my God. I didn't know you were here. You're here too. That's so cool. Like, um, and then after that, it was like back into the party and saying hello. And we do it. It was, you know, it was very much like a wedding experience where like, you know, it's a blur and, and you don't, you try to say hi to everybody. But you don't, you don't really, it was, it was so, so great. I mean, you being there, uh, trying your first cheesesteak, um, your first Philadelphia version well, of the first cheesesteak cheese in Philadelphia, yeah. Yeah, and first cheesesteak yeah. in Philadelphia from a, you know, and our caterer was excellent, so they they did a good job. Yeah. They had cheese was there um, for you to your 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 face. Um, we have some great images of you doing that with with you and Ben Rector eating cheesesteaks. Uh, that was fun, man. It was just such a fun group of people. Um, that was a great. If the party itself was like a metaphor for the book, I mean, because the trip, the book is about all these different people that somehow get together because of golf. And that's certainly what the party was. Um, yeah, that was cool. I, I think, too. Uh, and, and I promise we'll move on to the book here in just a sec. But uh, the, the last thought I had seeing I, I, I hope and I would think it would be very fun for your daughters to see, you know, because. And, and, and you detailed in the book, it's, it's hard to be away from them. Uh, certainly, you know, putting myself in their shoes, their, their dad's traveling. It's like, well, what's he doing? He's playing all this golf and he's writing this book. But I hope that party, I mean, for them to see the outpouring of, you know, love, if, if that's a little too sappy, but uh, just support and camaraderie and community. Um, I, I hope for them, they got to see 
the impact that that your work has uh for so many people so that yeah that was i'm glad you brought that up because that to me was the highlight of the party and again huge thanks and shout out to aaron for making it such a special thing where it wasn't just a golf tournament right it was like cool and it was fun and people like felt excited to be there and and she really did such a great job creating that and it made me look cool so which isn't that easy to do and because i looked cool at least i think for my kids for my kids like my 11 year old came up um and like gave me a hug and like was leaning on me and she's kind of hit the stage where she wants not that much to do with me right you're you're not very cool anymore right exactly but like i was like so it like my heart like kind of broke when like she came up and was like wanted to she wanted to hang around with me she wanted to like take pictures with me and other people and stuff and so that that that's just i mean as a dad you know it's that's that's the whole thing that was it yeah that's that's fantastic um well let's dive into it uh you and i are gonna wrap here for a little bit and then we have a very special guest joining us yes we do uh, Mr. Joel Murray, who makes an appearance on uh, towards the end of the first half of the book, in fact, the last chapter um, in Evanston, Illinois. So, um, folks, be be sure to stick around. We'll we'll chat to him about a wide variety of topics. Uh, but before we get there, I thought I would start, Tom. Um, one of the things I really love about your writing is your willingness to give us a window into your psyche. And um, I, there are three passages specifically uh, that, that kind of stood out to me. And I, w- I would love to discuss them with you. And, you know, I, I, I hope not to, don't necessarily want to analyze you as, as a psychiatrist might, but, but I do think they're, um, one, they're interesting. Two, I think they probably resonate with a number of people. They certainly resonate with me. And, uh, Three, I think they just help a reader understand you and, and get to know you. So uh, if you'll bear with me. I, I love the, this. I'm excited. Yeah, the, and, and you don't know where I'm going. We, we haven't no. pre-discussed any of this. So the first one is from page three, and I'll quote you here. I had been battling Brandons for decades. They were the voices in my mind's outer rim put there to remind me that I couldn't make this putt or miss that pond or win this match. They hammered down hope turned the possible into the unlikely and replaced my potential with my shortcomings. The idea that someday I might not hear them keep me sticking T's into the ground. Okay. So I want to, I want to throw that one out there. Yeah. Yeah. On page 18, you write, and I'm quoting people who don't play golf grow to envy their golfing neighbors, admiring it as a nifty game. You can play to a ripe old age. What they don't understand is that we don't keep playing because we can, we play because we don't know how to stop. And then the last one I want to throw out is on page 29. Again, quoting, I had told myself the scores wouldn't matter on this journey, even though they always mattered. A barometer whereby I judged my station as a golfer, and this a metric for my self-image, for better and often worse. So there's yeah. there's a the, yeah there's some things there. Yeah, there's, <laughs> some, there's some stuff there. I need to get on the couch and work out. Um, yeah, no, I, I think there's, I think it, it, I'm glad you tuned into those sections. Cause I, I think they do, um, definitely sort of reveal some stuff that, you know, things that you learn about yourself first, and then you can convey it 
hopefully um, it's funny whether you learn these things first and then write about them or you, you learn about them as mm -hmm. you, as you find yourself writing them. So there's a sort of, sometimes I think there's a therapy in the, in the process of trying to collect your thoughts too um, and make sense of them for sure. Um, yeah. The Brendan's. So the Brendan's it's, you know, Brendan is, you know, you meet him on page one of the book and he's my golfing nemesis in the story but he's also my best friend, um, you know, one of my best friends. And so it's a complicated relationship, but I wanted my, if I, you know, if I looked a little more closely, like, why am I so competitive with him? Why do I actually like go out and play with him? And it sucks all, I can suck all the fun out of it because, you know, what is it about playing golf with him? And it's like that, okay, it's, it's getting to those other levels or, or those other depths where it's not about brendan himself it's, it's about this sort of self-doubt um and and is know. that contained to golf because yeah. and, and i guess and, and i don't mean to pry into you know a lot of your personal life but do you, you you're writing do you feel that in writing at all yeah absolutely okay. i think insecurity is a little bit of insecurity um i'm grateful for it Mm -hmm. Um, it has been without it, I think, um, it push it is a great motivator, this voice that tells you that you suck. Um, and the, the bummer about golf is that golf confirms it a lot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it, like your voice, it will tell you like your voice in your head's like, you're not good enough. And then golf so hard that you'll go out and you'll, you'll prove it. Right. Um, but I, I'll still hear those voices with things that I think I am pretty good good at but um or that I, i've have had good results with but it's it's that motivator that sort of self-doubt that idea that like every time i sit down to write a story i feel like i have to prove something again right and um it'll make i don't know maybe it might make you lose hair and do other unhealthy things but uh for me it, i've gotten healthier dealing with it uh and i i have I think I can swing between sort of like extreme confidence and then total insecurity, like in the same sentence almost. Uh, it's a we. I don't know where. I, I think those are just two sides of, of my personality that that sort of confidence undercut by a complete have, fear have, of not being of not being any good. And has that? You're just a little older than me, but does that have have you noticed like an evolution with that like? Do you accept the presence of that voice more or yeah. can you dampen it a little bit more? Or is it, is it kind of like, no, it's, it's always, it's always going to be there. And like you yeah. said, it may be, you know, turning it into a motivator and an asset, but I, yeah. I'm just curious if, if that ever no, it's, lessens it changes. at all. Yeah, no, it changes. It changed. It's changed for me over time and, um, and with time. Right. Mm -hmm. And having to you know this is my fifth book and i kind of now finally feel like maybe i'm not a phony it took five books right three bestsellers and and now it's like oh okay maybe they'll let me write another one yeah like you know you still have that it's, that's still but that's good because i worked my ass off on this book i, I did not mail it in and mm -hmm. and the same thing like writing i turned in a story to travis for the golfer's journal today and there's always that feeling of like Ooh, is this the one where they're going to figure out I'm not any good at this, right? And 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 then you get some feedback and you're like, ooh, okay, fooled them again. Um, 
that's I think that's okay. I'm aware that that's what I'm doing. I've gotten to the point where I can quiet that voice and actually feel like, okay, you know, I'm, this is what I do and I'm, I'm okay at it. Um, and I've gotten to a point where, you know, there's a, there's a, the Jimmy Dunn stuff that's in the first half of the book. Um, there's a point where he describes that he doesn't feel like he's better than anyone else. And he doesn't feel like he's worse than anybody else. And if I can get there, I'm good. Um, it's not, and I, I'm, I found like in the last probably five years, I've had a lot easier time getting there. And, you know, honestly, what I did to deal with fear for the first 20 years of my life, I, I drank a shitload and wasn't, wasn't afraid of anything. Um, the only thing I was afraid of was running out of something to drink. So, um, you know, then once that goes away and you have to face all this stuff, you know, so you. Well, and that's where to to the quote I read on on page eighteen about like chasing that that feeling that that golf gives you right that those yeah. fleeting moments of bliss and joy and and control. I couldn't help but think about you know what I know about your journey, what you shared in the Scotland book, um, right. what the Golfer's Journal piece on the on the sober golf league. Yeah, that's again, I only say this like it's such a good window into who you are. And I think as a reader, I I don't know, I hope I speak for a lot of readers where it's like, man, that it humanizes you and it makes me root for you. And um, I I just really appreciate that. Yeah, well, I hope it's thank you. And I I hope it's something that, um, yeah, that that passage about, you know, not being able to stop golfing i mean there's a theme that runs through all these books going back to paper tigers there's like an obsessiveness there's there's like an, there's the straight up golf addiction right and that's that's okay I'm, I'm not i'm not alone in that um and whether i've traded one addiction for another or whatever um i hope that people uh can also see themselves in it where they'd say like you know my um that it's not just that they play golf um or they have certain pastimes or they have certain things in their their lives that that fill a void and um and hopefully they're things that aren't going to kill us um i had to put away one of those because it was going to and and look to something else and you know and it's been really really good um you know and so that void now i can fill it with golf with family with you know with with my work but i still need i'm still the kind of person that needs to fill it with something um i'm still a chaser you know and that's that's all right because I've had some pretty good I've had some pretty good chases and I've I've caught some good stuff along the way if you will. And I think what uh, just to maybe tie a bow on this particular subject, but uh, going back then to what you wrote on page twenty nine about you know the scores always matter, right? Like exactly. I, I can remember yeah. uh, to to draw an analogy, um, just growing up playing sports and and maybe specifically basketball, like whether it be pickup or. I can remember like younger where, you know, baseball, maybe they're not cute. Like I always knew the score. I oh, always yeah. know, like it, it, it does matter. And I think that's one of the things I love about you is you take your golf serious. And I, I think what I was looking for or what has piqued my interest as we get into the book is how you fight that the scores matter um, judging yourself, your golf based on, on the number versus, you know, a, a few times throughout the book, you say kind of looking for a playground or just have fun. And, and you come across people that have, you know, come back from quitting golf and, and a lot of that's just burnout. And, and I'm just, I, I'm curious how that, that 
give and take always weighs in you. Um, yeah, I know. And it makes me feel sometimes like a bit of a hypocrite, right? Cause like yeah. I'll teach this, so I like sort of preach some of the soulful, like spirit of the game, you know, yeah. up in the, you know, the highlands and feeling the, the, the soulfulness of a well-struck shot and all that, you know, but at the end of the day, I'm like, what, what did I make? You know? Um, and that's, I think that's, that's okay. I mean, the game is built around that. Like you're trying to get the ball in the hole as fast as you can. And while I wanted to like highlight in the book, some of those like soul seekers and, and celebrate them, you know, mm -hmm. people like uh, my friend, Tom Young from ballpark blueprints, who goes out and plays with like five clubs and they don't have numbers on them. And they're, you know, and, and he, and he gave me his, he play he was at the book party and he gave me his scorecard at the end to turn in a score and on a scorecard there was there were faces describing his emotions <laughs> <laughs> from each from each hole right like sad confused happy how he felt about how each hole made him feel yeah. and uh, i know he was busting my chops because we go back and forth on that like he doesn't keep score and i'm i'm manically like statistical about like you know i don't like yeah. keep all my gir and stuff like that but i like to follow my handicap and post I want to post everything. If I can't post the score, I'm kind of pissed. Like I, I, I feel like I want to keep that metric and that barometer of like where my game is, mm -hmm. um, because I put a lot of time into it, you know? So yeah. Well, and, and I, that's, <laughs> I, no, I just have to laugh because I, I feel that so deeply. Um, I don't think it's in the first half, but a little spoiler for folks that have not gotten into the second half. Uh, when you talk about Bally Neal, and your right. frustration with DIY golf and picking your tee box and, you know, no course rating, just, you know, just have fun. And I'm like, Oh God, no, that sounds miserable. I hate that shit. Like, <laughs> give me, where do I tee off? You know, right. what's the course rating? Like, let me post a number. Um, yep. I, I freak out when like we were playing and they're like, Oh, let's play back at tee this hole. I'm like, no, like that's going to mess up the whole, you know, handicap. <laughs> I'm exactly the same way. Exactly <laughs> the same way. Like, yeah, where it's like, oh no, let's let's move tee this one up or let's play, let's get loosey goosey with it. Or like, no, this back tee is so cool. Don't you want to see? I'm like, dude, I'm working on a number from the blue tee right now. And no, I'm not going back there. Like just this weekend at our club, Josh is probably gonna listen to this, was like, Hey, do you want to play like for the golds? Like there was a match going on from the blues for the two guys we were going to play with, but he's like, well, let's go back and we'll play from the golds. And even though like we could have played the whole round from there, I'm like, no, I want to play the blues because I feel like I want to make a number today and I want to post something. Um, cause I feel like I'm playing pretty good. So I don't want to go like, go punish myself. Like I want to, I want to put up a number today. That's going to matter to no people <laughs> in the universe, except for me. Right. right. I, I just right. felt like, you know, all right. I, I, you know, so yeah, that stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly, I'm with you on that one. The, the picking of the, um, of the, of the T and then not being able to post your score, not knowing the rating. Um, I get it. And I, there's a part of me that wishes I could totally accept that, but I will, I, I part of me is always going to fight that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's dive in. I kind of have just some, some questions and thoughts. Maybe, uh, I'll try to go a little bit chronologically, you know, obviously you, you detail and talk about so much in the book. So I'm, I'm trying to pick out questions that are additive uh, and maybe beyond the scope of specific things you write about. So um, I do want to say page eight, you lay out your thesis. I, I want to go and find the great American golf course. So I think that's everybody stick that in your back of your mind. I think we can all agree. Uh, you know, you, you give us the theme, you give us the goal very early. 
Um, but let's let's jump in here. My first thing is New Haven. You went up to Yale early in the book. Uh, I have not played the Yale golf course. What struck me is one, you said it was worth the hype or the publicity it gets, which is good to know. I do want to play it. You got to tell me about the New Haven pizza. Like what makes, what what is different about the Yale pizza? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, it's hard to describe. I should say that in, you know, so I play Yale that year and loved it. And then I guess, you know, it had all these problems and was neglected and they did, you know, they just literally stopped maintaining it. Mm-hmm. apparently so it went bad and now it's on its way back so um if you go to yale now and are like what the hell was he talking about um i played it under under different conditions but as with um many chapters in the book the real star uh was the meal so i'd always heard about yale pizza like this new haven pizza as being a thing and um is it different is is it just like a round pie like well like is Help me. I, I know like Chicago style. I know, yeah. you know, New so, York, big slices, fold them over. We were getting the place. Where did we go? Modern, um, a mo- modern, a pizza. It's a pizza as well. They put an A in front of it. Okay. Um, which is weird. Um, and then, so yeah, our host took us to modern pizza, which was not modern had been around for a very very long time um and so what were we gosh the pie i feel like i remember uh right angles so it might have been a round pie cut at right angles thin crust okay Okay. so a cousin of a new york pie uh i feel like it was perhaps i could be wrong about this but a little bit of a trenton style where the cheese is laid and then the sauce on top um what what it is about it was the it just had the perfect the perfect tang the the tomato cheesy tang and the thin crust it wasn't a crunchy crust it was i'm not i'm not capturing the experience because i feel like it's one of those things that you just have to you have to to go experience yourself, Randy. Well, you're answering my most basic question, though. I, I and I, I didn't phrase my question that uh, well. So I'm picking up that it's it's about the ingredients more so than that they've somehow concocted a new way to serve pizza. Because I, I guess no, that's what I was right. most curious it's not about. A, it's not a deep dish. That's why it's good kind of thing. I just found the whole thing ingredients and a nice a nice thin crust. So. So be- better than, you know, like your Rays, you know, which would be your New York thin crust. So okay. Far, far superior ingredients. I'm glad. I'm so glad we settled. Um, I so, yes. needed some clarification on that. Uh, we have our first, what I will call, or at least for me, my first true under the radar star course that appears. Uh, St. George's, the course yeah. that... I admittedly would know nothing about. You might as well put like flashing lights when you said if if you could call or it would be the course you would call home on Long Island. I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, uh, absolutely. So, and that to me set the tone for Long Island because just like you said, I'd never heard of it. And I wasn't sure why I was even, I'm not even, I have to think about how did I even end up there? I think Jeff, 
Jeff Warren, who's the head pro at the bridge, was like giving me a lot of tips on Long Island as I was planning. And I think he must have thrown out St. George and like that I can get um, that he knew someone he helped get me on there. Um, the pro there is like related. I don't want to say, but there's to be because I'm going to be wrong, but there's a <laughs> the pros related to it has a name, a last name you would know. Um, and so it's like, oh, that's interesting. And all right, it's on the way, like up to the rest of the other Long Island courses that I'd come to see. But that was, it sort of set the tone in, the, in that this question, like how good is Long Island? I'd heard yeah. about how great Long Island golf was for a long time, but I'd never explored it, you know, except for like going to the Shinnecock as a spectator when I was a kid. So, you know, once I, I got to St. George's and I'm like, this is as good as anything like I've ever played in America. And nobody talks about it um i was like wow the national must be really good and shinnecock must be so good so and that all turned out to be to be true but yeah st george is super cool i had the logo factor strong logo factor where it had um st george on his horse stabbing the dragon with a five <laughs> iron um so i'm like big big props for that that always sets the tone yep and uh and then the fact that um i believe is a Deborah emmett that was up to, you know cleared out and made even more brilliant by um our friend gill and uh i hope it, i'm on 90 i gotta read my own book damn it it was it's a it was kill right you're, yeah, uh, you're, you're, yeah. you're doing well yep yep <laughs> like <laughs> it was a joke um no, but it just, it was just such a, a fun, fun time. Yeah. Uh, it just felt, it was that course where you're like, man, I want to keep it in these shots again and again and again and again, because it just had great movement and was just, it was built to play. And, and that's what, what Gil restored when he restored it and such a winner. Speaking of Gil, uh, did he talk to you at all about uh, Rolling Green on the day of the event? So there's a lot of, con I've been hearing about that from other people which is interesting who weren't anywhere near the party hey yo you hear what gil said about rolling green i i know he was a let, little... let me just say for folks it it if there was a harder golf course in america that day i i, I wouldn't believe it absolutely would not <laughs> believe it i i loved it i loved the setup so much i mean just diabolical would be it an understatement nasty. yeah the greens were flying and the pins were tucked um they did add and everyone's like yo man like i set up the course they did ask me like <laughs> do you want okay where do you want the pin i just said i just said well just don't put them all in the middle you know like let's see some in let's <laughs> let rolling green be rolling green but um it was certainly rolling green that was as tough as i'd ever seen it play i played really well by the way i think just because i was so relieved to be out on the course and like was just having fun yeah, yeah. um and and obviously i've been around those greens a million times but uh yeah what did you, i knew he said they were too fast i i heard because because Solly played with him. So the, the oh, what Solly I heard was, was beside himself. Well, Solly, I think, made a 10 on a par three. He yeah. was uh he was he he said he had a bird, he had like a 15-foot birdie putt and made 10. Uh if, if if and he was like, I tried every shot. Um I, I think Gil in Gil, that was the first time I'd ever met Gil in person. Uh just such an unassuming, really salt of the earth, understated type of guy. And, and I believe the quote was at some point, I guess Holly said he he turned to the group and was just like, "This is a bit of some silly golf today." I, I believe is what. Oh yeah. I believe is what Gil said. Wow. 
<laughs> Gil, that that cuts me. Um, no, but what's interesting is that Gil starts work at Rolling Green, I think, pretty soon. So yeah. he's going to be doing some of the uh, the restoration renovation so i uh, i wonder if that experience what influence that will have suddenly rolling green will have 18 uh flat um <laughs> soft flat greens no uh, i know he's he's a great him i'd say he's gonna do such a good job I'm, I'm i'm so excited but yeah it was that was certainly the topic of the evening was was how the course played it was it was great it was it was great um all right page 44 one of my favorites Mr. Michael Bamberger, um, yeah. I, I just get delighted anytime I can read about <laughs> him or, you know, read his words. I, I want to hear you describe Michael Bamberger as okay. a golf writer, as a person, as a golfer. What, what if, if somebody just says, if, if I say Michael Bamberger, what, what's your first reactions? Uh, as a golfer, he has a real, um, real respect for the game that you would say, um, I would say purist, but that has negative connotations and I wouldn't want to associate him with those, but he does certainly, um, he loves golf. And as a person, he's a, a really generous, thoughtful um, individual, intellectual um, for sure. And, and as an intellectual sort of curiosity and almost intensity. So when you talk to Michael, like you're engaged and he's engaged in what you're talking about. So I wouldn't call Michael up to like, shoot the shit. Uh, <laughs> but uh, not that I haven't shot the shit with him many times, but um, you know, generally uh, you, we have, um, and he also, he loves his golf. So like when you're out playing with him and I've only played with him, I think maybe that was my second time or maybe played with him since then. But um, like, he wants to play, right? Like it's not, and I'm the same way. So I appreciate that. Like you don't have to feel obligated to um, ask a lot of questions or have a lot of chit chat or like, what did you think about what Tiger did or like stuff like that? You know, like sometimes when you're, I guess, quote in the business, I don't know if people feel compelled to like bring things up and have those conversations, but um, I'm not really, I'm always, you know, after a score and, um, I know Michael's into his golf as well. I don't think he's gets as hung up on probably gets as hung up on the numbers as I do. I'm so, I mean, he plays the Philly cricket nine holer a lot, the St. Martin's course. And, um, cause that's where he belongs and he belongs to other places. Um, but, uh, which he hasn't invited me to yet, but in any event, uh, at cricket, he plays the nine holer and I know he likes to carry, like he wouldn't be caught dead in a golf cart. I think he was heavily influenced by, you know, his time in Scotland and, and golf, European golf, you know, the sort of purity of that game. So Michael's a great dude. And in the book, I, I definitely, that chapter for me, there is this thing in the back of my head. There's, it's not a rivalry, but because I don't think writers should be rivals. I think that's kind of a wasted energy and, and stupid. Um, and he's been a big help to my career. And, uh, but in the back of my head, like, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I wanted to beat him. You know, we weren't keeping score. Like, but, as but a match. you know, yeah. Who, who, yeah, I mean, you, I you assume you beat him, right? Yeah. I, I, I would have had lower scores, uh, in, yeah. in total. Yes. Well, and I can guarantee you, Michael won't be listening to this because I don't, you know, I, I assume okay. he doesn't listen to podcasts, maybe, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, 
Well, our editor probably will, and then he'll tell him. Um, yeah. Because we have the same editor. It's funny with Michael that we've had, like, he was at a place called Gotham Books when I was at Gotham Books, which is an imprint at, at Penguin, and did some stuff there. And then he ended up over at Simon & Schuster with Jofi, and I went over to Simon & Schuster with Jofi. So we've we've kind of followed, um, I guess I've probably followed him. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's... It was a bummer he couldn't make the the party. He was working his way back up from um, the PGA. Uh, yeah, that was going to be an issue for some folks. But yeah, that was. I was glad he made it into the book. I was glad he made it there that day. Um, that was where he grew up playing, and it was one of the places where it's like, Michael, if you're going to join me on this, I really hope you can make it here because you know, that was his spot. Yeah, Bell Point. I was going to say with the, with the spot being Bell Point. All right, let's. Uh... I want to ask you about Friar's Head. That was another one that's uh, stood out to me. And I think probably for reasons that you and I went over, uh, one tee box, no hole rankings. You're going to play a match? Cool. Like, it's straight up. We're, you know, we're not going to help you, like, handicap the match. What, what's that? You know, very, very just <laughs> golf feeling. The, the note I wrote down in my book, though, was, you know, I, I weighed that, which I was like, oh, my God, count me in. Like, that sounds amazing. Uh I, the, the note I wrote down is Friar's Head cool because I, I kind of counterbalance that with I'm sure it's, it came off a little bit stuffy, you know, not being able to fix your own ball marks or <laughs> like some of that stuff. I'm like, come on, man. Like I really, right. I, maybe it's the Midwest in me, but like, dude, I can fix my own like pitch mark or divot. Like I, uh, where, where do you net out on a place like Friar's Head? Yeah, where, I mean, it's intimidating when you're like, I'm already intimidated to be there because I can't find the damn place. There's no, <laughs> it's one of those courses with no sign. And, you know, okay, you're like, all right, I think I'm going down the right driveway, you know, or they let you, you get through the gate. And, and the first thing you do is you get a lesson on like, if, if you make a, a pitch mark, don't touch it. Like bring somebody in to repair it. You're like, dude, like I've arrived in some other golf universe and I'm not comfortable here. I, it's, yeah. I'm scared, right? So like the intimidation factor from all that kind of like gets ratcheted up. And especially like we had kind of, again, I, I'm not quite sure how we got the tea time, but um, we were very much guests and um, it was, it's, and, and the, even the structure itself, the clubhouse is like stunning, like right there on the sort of ocean cliffs and, and the golf course is so good. You know, people ask about, is it that good? It, it's one of those that's, yep, it's probably better than, than what you've been told or you think. I mean, poor Crenshaw, I think by a, a wide margin, it's the greatest thing. Well, Sand Hills, but Sand Hills, they kind of found. And I feel like maybe they had to, um, this property is pretty, is, is, uh, has different, a lot of different personalities and, uh, and the, what they strung together is just, it's just unbelievably great and, and just super, super fun. So, um, I net out on it as I really want to go back there someday. And so, um, I'm only going to say super nice things about it because, you know, but there is that, like, it's a part in the book where I leave and I'm reflecting and think, damn, that's like some exclusive stuff. And like, am I a total phony for knocking on these doors and trying to like beg my way into golf courses where I don't belong? Um, like belong in terms of like, I couldn't be a member there, you know? Um, but that's, that um, you, you can't, you can't give a fair accounting of American golf without exploring those places because that, right. You know, that was the thing I, I said, like know, it or not. Those, yeah. Those that's, places that's, play such a big role. I've got to, you know, take it for the team and, you know, and make that bargain and say, all right, 
I'm going to play all these places where I have to beg my way onto them. And, um, and Friar's Head was, was one of those places. So, but it was so good. And it's just a different spot. I mean, it's sort of like run by one person and, uh, in his image of what, um, he thinks, um, and I happen to agree with a lot of what he thinks. Maybe the Ballmark thing is a little different, but um, damn, the greens were good. So again, love to come back. Love to have someone fix my Ballmarks for me again. It was awesome. <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> Two thumbs up. Okay. okay. Sp- speaking of, I thought, uh, deftly maneuvering around a subject. Uh, I-, I thought you handled the Garden City men's only club issue pretty smartly i think pretty fairly pretty reasonably um thank you i i that was i i'm glad you said that and i'm glad you pointed to that because i honestly that was a tricky one and a tough one and um it's my understanding i don't want to speak for now now let me tr- now, now let me be delicate in talking about this since i, I delicately <laughs> right. wrote it I will delicately try to describe the repercussions in the aftermath. Um, I would say that I wouldn't be um, invited to their member guest anytime soon, I guess would be one way to, to put it, <clears throat> um, is, is, is my understanding. There were a few sections in the book that I showed to people before the book was published. There were only a handful. Um, maybe I should have done more, uh, but there were, if I got into any like sensitive territory, I, I wanted people to see, you know, my friend who belonged to Augusta, I wanted to make sure he was okay with that. I, I want to make sure Jimmy Dunn was good with his stuff and the way he was portrayed. <clears throat> Not that anyone asked me to really change anything. I just didn't want anyone to be surprised about the book. And I did the same thing with Garden City. I sent the pages to my host. Um, and he, the original version had a few more of the Garden City stories. Because as I'm traveling Long Island, I'm collecting <clears throat> a lot of people have stories about the Garden City, the Garden City Club, otherwise known as the Garden City Men's Club, which is what everyone calls it. And I had a lot of these stories and some of them were in the book and, and they pointed out, well, that this would this is false and that's an, that's not accurate. And, and this is actually how it works. And that was good. I'm glad I got that feedback and, and I and I corrected some things. And and that's what you get in the book, which I tried to make really fair. And, and, and try to give the course its props and its dues and say how much I love the golf course and point out that, you know, a, a club that um, has those gender sort of restrictions wouldn't be for me, wouldn't be a fit necessarily. But if 200, 300 guys on Long Island want to have their own golf club, go for it. You know, I, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a tough one. It's like, you know, yeah, if you want to have, I, I do believe, you know, if you want to have a club that's all women, if you want to have a club that's all men, if you want to have a club that's all whatever, you know, all left-handers, all right-handers, like, I, you know, it's America, I don't care. Um, they're not having events at, at Garden City, so it's it's no, you know, it's a private club. It's no skin off anyone's back. But I just tried to make the point that it's a shame, I, I felt, that a club, that a golf course that is so good, Every time someone brought it up to me when I was in Long Island, had a story about some non, about some something really pretty silly, having to do with the fact that it's dudes only, right? Yeah. That that part of it kept bumping, and that the fact that it's known as the Garden City Men's Club, right? Right. That 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 becomes part of the story when there's so much other awesome stuff to the place, and that like as as a storyteller, I can't tell the Garden City story without mentioning any of that, and people could say, "Oh, yes, you could." Well. I don't think I'm not not 
not the way I was not, not accurately stories, right. Right? exactly. And it's yeah. like, if you don't want that to be part of the narrative, just change it. Pine Valley just did. It's not that big of a damn deal, you know? But anyway, like I said, there were, there was a, a heard through the grapevine that they would probably have rather not been part of this, the story, but that's okay. I, I understand. Yeah. I agree with everything you said. Um, I think for people, you know, why, why are they allowed to, you, you said it, like if garden city were hosting, tournaments if they were you know certainly to the point of like augusta with a with a major tournament each year uh, I, I believe those those clubs have a little bit different responsibility um i, I think in the end where i net out is like i am with you and i think it, i try to apply it in, in everything like man live and let live as as much as possible uh and i kind of at the end of the day i'm like if you know you guys don't have female members i, I feel like that's just kind of you're only hurting yourselves at that point, right? Like, you know, I, I think it's just to your detriment. And so if that's, if that's how you want to have it, fine. Uh, but I, I'm with you where uh, just be, it, it would just be tough. I'm sure I would play it if ever given an invite, maybe not anymore if people listen to my thoughts here, but um, yeah. You both will have to. I, I, I just, I could never, there's too much there to where I was like, oh man, I, I just, I, I couldn't, join there I, I would just feel a little bit uncomfortable i guess and like you said it's a matter of like um there you know there was probably a time where and there used to be a lot more men's only golf clubs even when i was growing up but there was a time where you'd say okay this is a place for guys to be guys because you didn't want to say certain words or do certain things in front of, you know, I, I don't know. I just don't feel like this next generation of golfers is afraid about saying shit in front of a woman. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I don't, whereas like in my dad's generation, they would be like, Oh Jesus Christ. He said, I can't believe you did that. That's, <laughs> that's, that's scandalous stuff. And so I understand that there was a, an idea of like, okay, let's just have this all be men and they can all smoke cigars and say shit. But in, in 2000, what years is 21? You can smoke cigars and say shit in front of women. Um, I, and I, I and they can smoke cigars and say shit in front of you. <laughs> exactly. And so I feel like that's it's it's eventually going to change. In the book, I called it a cultural novelty. So because there's almost something like strangely charming about it, because um, it reminds you of a different era. But I don't know. Yeah, it 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 is a relic. Uh, but I I did I appreciated. Obviously, not an easy subject to distill down. I think, you know, you're, you're obviously working with constraints there as well. Uh, it could be, I'm sure you could write for 30 pages on full thoughts and, and expand upon it. But I, I did think you did a, a pretty good, reasonable job there. Um, I got ahead of myself a little bit. I, so I don't really have a question here except for Jimmy Dunn. I would encourage, you did a podcast with him for the Golfer's Journal. So I, I would almost defer folks just go listen to your interview, hear, hear about the man from from his own mouth. But you know, just seems like maybe the heaviest of the heavy hitters in American golf, right? Like, you know, when we joke about Illuminati members, I, I picture like Jimmy Dunn is is probably the most plugged in, connected uh, of just about anybody. I, I, I thought your, I don't know, profile or your chapters, it kind of bleeds over in, into a couple chapters, was just wonderful. And I, I, like I said, I don't know if I really have a question here, but um that that certainly stuck out as as one of my favorite parts of this first half of the book. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, for me too, and and certainly the highlight of Long Island and one of the highlights of the book was just you know getting to to know him and um and the fact that he's just a pretty exceptional 
person um, for a lot of a lot of different reasons. Um, and the primary among them, because he doesn't make you feel like you're less exceptional when you're around him. You don't feel mm -hmm. I, I've been around important people before and you feel um, that they're aware of their importance. Um, and I think that that's essentially why at the end of the day, people like being around Jimmy Dunn because he's still part of him is still, you know, Jimmy from Long Island. And, um, and he doesn't have that. Um, he doesn't have a necessarily a, a chip on his shoulder it's it's i guess you would just call it like grace right he just kind of handles himself um the right seems to handle himself the right way and that by doing that and also be by being extremely successful you know in his in his in his professional life <laughs> yeah. has opened a lot of doors and and like he says in the story like i'm not into cars like i'm into golf golf so i belong to a lot of golf clubs like i don't collect cars but i probably I don't know if he collects memberships and he never really talked would give me how many clubs he belonged to but um <laughs> if, if it, it just say like, he just belongs to all of them it's just all it's just, yeah just all of them um and if he does it he could certainly get a game at all of them pretty sure about that um so yeah and and he's been really supportive and um you know was positive about the book but it was intimidating like I, there's a few things like writing an american book just to digress a little bit is a is certainly been a different experience getting feedback you know um than writing the american in scotland or the ireland and scotland books where those it was like way over there and i wasn't talking about like um my neighbors or there weren't people in the book who i was going to see like at the store you know like it's really like immediate like writing about this golf in, in america story and uh, and that's so it's been interesting like um i mean the feedback has been really really positive but i've also found that garden city is an example or some other places in the book where um there's like a sensitivity um about how i portrayed a course or an event or a quote where um it's it's been um it's been really interesting so with with jimmy i, I showed him the chapters and wanted to make sure that like he signed, he was that he felt like I quoted him correctly. I had recorded the whole thing because most of it comes from the podcast. So, but I still wanted like him to be cool with it. And what was interesting because there were a few personal details, like right. And he's such he he is such a sharp mind that um, there were just some very small things that I I don't I wouldn't have caught or other folks wouldn't have noticed, but but that he did catch. And just ask them to be, you know, to be corrected or, or, you know, put add this instead of that because this is what actually happened or this is what I was actually doing that day. Or anyway, his memory and and his recall, as I talk about in the book, his recall for conversations and things, they're so was is so precise. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to get him to sign off on it because I'm like, I don't want to screw up anything um, that happened that day because he's going to, he, he's going to really remember it. Like yeah. I'll have it in my notes, but like, he doesn't forget anything. Um, so it was kind of intimidating, right. Writing about him. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just interesting. I, I think to find, I, I do find that, um, we are, I don't want to say like that the American audience is more sensitive than I thought they'd be. But they're very, um, or maybe they're opinionated, I guess. I mean, my book has my golf, I mean, sorry, the book has like my golf opinions in it, but um, folks who've disagreed with them have definitely let me know. And 
Is this your feelings on a course? Like, yeah, is, is that where you get the, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's been the, my, my impressions on a golf course. And, uh, and that's been interesting because well, yeah. Yeah. Like I didn't experience that so much. It happened like once in the Scotland book, like that I didn't go gaga for Hoy Lake, like someone like ripped me a new one. Um, but it's, uh, people's investment in their, in their clubs. Right. Yes. Yes. And they're wanting to be considered X, Y, or Z or spoken of in X, Y, and Z. What I found that American courses too, like this, this is what I'm trying to say that a place like some of these exalted names that are up at the top, um, some of which we've just spoken about like to control their narrative, right? They like to like tell you, this is how the club should be spoken about. This is how, you know, this is how this place should be appreciated. And this is how, uh, we want you to write about it, talk about it, think about it, right? Now that then, in our, that that was not the case in Ireland and Scotland, right? I mean, maybe right. in Muirfield, but you know, they were just like, oh yeah, it's a big field out there, you know, like go have fun, and like it's made by a million years of nature, right? Like it wasn't. So coming back and and like yes, and hearing from folks saying like, well, maybe we didn't appreciate that you said this. And sometimes it wasn't even just a negative thing. It was just the fact that like you, you, you revealed this about the club or you didn't, it's, it's this anxiety. I, I feel like that some of these top clubs that they're, if they're not controlling their narrative, they get uneasy about that. And uh, it makes one kind of, it makes me a little sad and it makes one step back and think like, what the hell is the big deal, man? This is a game. This is a silly little game where we put, try to stick a ball into a little hole in the ground and, and, you know, people, um, which is bullshit because I've built my life around it, but I don't know. Um, I, I got to think, I don't know, just knowing you a little bit. I mean, certainly you wouldn't want to do anything to, to sabotage anything, but me speaking, and I think we probably share some of these qualities is the more a course or an entity wants to control that narrative or try to, push you along to say certain things i i don't know just speaking from some of the stuff like no laying up wise like that's where i get the most enjoyment out of just poking the bear a little bit more oh for sure (laughs) yeah there's no doubt about it i mean if if you're if you're just if i'm being honest it's like oh uh, oh you you really get upset about this okay well let me just let me see if i can just (laughs) stir it a little bit then (laughs) no doubt about it and I'm sure you guys have bumped up against this where, you know, and because it's, it's, but it's this fine line, right? Cause you're like, well, I need access to this right. place, but then, right. okay. Yeah. But now you want me to say this, that, or the other. So like, it's, it's trying to walk both. And that's what the garden city chapter is essentially trying to do. Like you're walking that line um, and you're trying to do it with like journalistic integrity, uh, but you're with, but also with um, honest opinion. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, it can be tricky, but I think at some point you have to decide. And I had to decide, I don't give a shit if I get invited back to a single one of these golf courses. I had to get okay with that, right? Yeah. Now, hell, I'd like to be invited back to a lot of them, but it's all right. It's okay. I know there's some that I'm not going back to. Um, and that's fine, you know, but you got to get to that point where you're like, dude, like, it's okay. I got to play it once and if they don't like what I say, you know, that's, I mean, that's just the basics of being a critic, being critical, I suppose. Yeah. Well, two points directly to that. One, uh, I, I feel like to serve the audience at all, you, you have to take that mindset. And two, 
I look at it as is if, if a course doesn't want me back for saying ultimately what are pretty harmless, uh, truthful, accurate things, then it's probably not a place I want to go anyway, you know, especially having gotten to play it once. Yeah. Right. You know, it's generally (laughs) how it works out. There's, there's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, exactly. So, um, all right, kind of speeding along. I no question here, but I appreciated you. I learned about John Chippen. Uh, you really piqued my interest. Historical character there. Um, John McDermott is another one who I had known. I, I had gone down that rabbit hole last year, uh, but fascinating story there as well. Um, so I, I loved their inclusion. Uh, you head out west to the Pacific Northwest. David McClay kid is fantastic. We got to have lunch with him and play at Tethero. Uh, just a very thoughtful guy and somebody who I, I think, at least the way I like golf, um, he, he's a guy I would trust to build golf courses and to, I don't know, um, shepherd along the game. Uh, he, he's somebody I, I think that, that you know, gets it, for lack of a better term. Uh, I agree. He gets it. That's the way of putting it. Yeah, I, I was curious. Did you not, when you, your chapter on Bandon Dunes, was Sheep Ranch not open? Have you played Sheep Ranch? Yeah, it wasn't open. So um, okay. it was, I could, you could see the grass up on the hill, like in the yonder distance, but, uh, and I have not played it yet. Um, I, that was my question. Had you played yeah, it subsequent? No, Golfer's Journal was there for the opening, but it was like prime COVID time. So I wasn't about to fly across the country. Um, uh, so I have not. Not that Golfer's Journal was having huge events during COVID. Um, it was it was when things were reopening, but it wasn't quite like I wasn't ready to fly across the country. So I, I have not played it. No. Yeah, I'll be curious where it, where it slots in for you in in your rankings. Me too. Um, yeah. Alaska, would you go back? Would you go back for golf? Would you go back just as a tourist? Uh, I, I think that's such a I don't know. Not a lot of people get up to Alaska. I would absolutely go back as yeah. as a tourist. I don't know if I feel the need to, um, you know, we found a pretty good golf course and Sheena Bend at, on the, on the base there and, and a, a, a good, a good golf course, like a real solid, you know, muscular golf course in good shape. Um, but I, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily run back there with my golf clubs. I'd want to do some other stuff, you know, um, all those things you're doing now in Colorado. I see, you know, in the background there, you've got a, a kayak hanging above your head. No, no, he doesn't. Um, I wish. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, but I'd want to do some of that stuff and see a bear in the wild, which is something we did not accomplish yeah. on this trip. So, uh, Last question for you before we get to Mr. Murray is waiting. Uh, Bob Ford sounds like a really interesting guy. Let me, let me start right here. You gave him the very vaunted Mr. Status. Uh, I'm curious, what does a person need to, what are those qualities to, to earn a Mr.? from Tom Coyne. <sighs> right. I mean, cause like it's, you know, Mr. Ford and Mr. Palmer, right. I don't know who else. Mr. I'm, Nicholas, I'm, of course. I guess you're going, yeah, we'll go Mr. Yeah. Mr. Nicholas. So it's, it's, it's pretty rare status. I mean, and and Bob Ford just commands it. He's got that like just pure, like class is a, is a word or a modifier or is, is difficult to literally is difficult to define. Like, what is it? Right. So, but it's one of those things, obviously, you know it when you see it. And, um, and the short class tongue. and pornography. 
So says the Supreme Court. <laughs> um, so the uh, yes, you you know it when you're around it, and uh, and that was the case with with Mr. Ford. You know, uh, when I got to spend some time, uh, it was a funny. Like I interviewed him. I was at Seminole, like at a different time. The book, like the the Florida trip, is a little bit out of chronology with the rest of of the trip. But um, when I got to, so I actually interviewed him at Seminole at a sort of earlier point. So that interview is taken and moved into the Yokemont chapter. It's one of these things. It's what we call it creative nonfiction, folks. Sure. Um, so in any event, um, I collected, I, you know, I got to sit there in the back, at the, in the, basically in the back room at Seminole and, 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 and speak with him and listen to him tell stories. And, uh, and for him to like give me that time and, uh, you know, he didn't really know who I was, but, you know, to treat me, like make me feel comfortable and welcome. And, and you know, I think people generally... I think people that have accomplished so much yet make you feel as if you matter um, and that they're genuinely uh, pleased to be speaking with you is a, is a, is a kind of a, like a rare combination and Bob Ford does it pretty effortlessly. And so that to me, it's him, Mr. Status. And he also just carries himself with this air. Like, I don't know, like, I don't know. It feels like kind of like an admiral, or like a, has a quality, that kind of quality to him, like a, a quiet confidence that is uh, very like reassuring and steady. There's a steadiness there that, uh, that makes it, makes him Mr. Ford. Yeah. He, um, it, it's that humility, I think is what people I would anoint as, you know, Mr. I, I, it's it's that humility and I think I would be more apt to call somebody Mr. who I knew that, you know, they weren't quite comfortable with it rather than somebody who was like, Oh yes, please call me Mr. Yes, please exactly. you know, rain that down upon me. Um, Very good point. Yeah. So uh, do you, have you ever met Mike Foley, Panther Mike? Hell yeah. I've met Panther Mike. So I don't yeah, know. When he was down at sea Island. He hooked I've, me up. Yeah, I'm going to totally embarrass him if he happens to be listening to this, but he is a guy, I, I give him a lot of grief, but he is, and he worked for Bob Ford. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know if it's, it's no coincidence, but he, he is so, he exudes all of that in like a, I don't know how old he is, let's say 30 years old. But if there was somebody that I was pinning like 50 years from now, uh, Michael Foley, I think is, is, is that type <laughs> of person. So, uh, yeah, man. Well, we have my pro, our pro at Waynesboro, Adam Brigham is, is a, a for like worked for Bob Ford for a little while. And like his, his head pro, like his coaching tree, if you will, is like so vast and extraordinary. Like the, the great golf pros that have come out from under his uh, tutelage. So it's, it's pretty, uh, and Panther Mike right there at the top. No doubt yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that takes us up to Evanston and more or less the first half of the book. Tom, thank you. Uh, let's get Joel in here. Yes, um, let's do. We, we will we will chat with him. And yeah, thank you. This was this was awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Get, let's get it. Let's get some Murray in here. Hey, everybody. Randy here again. Sorry to interrupt. I want to thank our other sponsor for today's episode. That is our good friends at Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered you are, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from both your workouts and the normal stressors of life. Whoop can help anyone perform better, whether it's preparing for a golf match, a race, a meeting. 
Whatever you have going on in your life, Whoop can help you plan out your day and make smarter lifestyle decisions to help you feel better than ever. Whoop tracks all four stages of sleep from slow wave, REM, light, and those times you're awake and can tell you how much sleep you've gotten down to the minute. Whoop has also recently partnered with Strava, so you can now upload your activities automatically from Whoop to Strava with recovery, sleep, and other metrics. I know that's a very popular app right now. So listeners, right now, Whoop is offering 15% off when you use the code TRAPDRAW, all one word, TRAPDRAW at checkout. Go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com, and enter the code TRAPDRAW to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop today. And now on to the rest of our episode. Joining us now, hopping on with us, one of the characters from the book. um, You have read about him in the Evanston, Illinois chapter. I will say he appears again later in the book. Mr. Joel Murray, live from somewhere in Mississippi, let's say, uh, doing on a work project. Joel, good evening. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Randy, slash Phil, slash whatever your real name is. <laughs> hey, Tom, how you doing? I'm doing well, Joel. So You're close to the sun there. I, I know. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, my face is right up here against it. Um, Mississippi, but you're down there. So it's the HGTV show, my ta- our town, right? Which I've seen hometown. a couple of. Home, hometown. Hometown. Ben and Aaron uh, Napier is the last name. I just learned that. Are you going to be on the show? Or are you just going as, are you as a fan? Like what's well, your my role? Wife and I are trying to figure out a way that we could be on all these rehab shows where we could just, you know, invest a very small amount and they would take our house to a whole nother level. And it would it'd be really good investment. And, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, we're kind of charming and a, a little bit witty and funny and uh, have some good design ideas. So if we could get on all these shows, I think it would be a, a great investment across the way. So we're just, you know, Putting down roots here, trying to figure out how to get. Out. I was going to say you have to move to Mississippi, but I think at one point they were switching sides and they were choosing up sides and like, okay, we're going to get a lot of liquid, we're going to get a lot of deep fried foods and all the humidity. Your pick, and the northerners <laughs> took. You know, we're going to take manufacturing and uh, good, you know, cold weather and uh, better basketball teams. I don't know, but uh, somewhere <laughs> along the way, somebody took high humidity. And I, I, I can't go with that pick ever. No, let me hear you. Well, let's, uh, I mean, I could just be a fly on the wall listening to you guys banter, but I guess I should ask some, some questions pertinent to the book. Uh, Joel, let me start here. I, I I've read in other places. Um, your late older brother, Ed was really your family's path to golf in the beginning. Um, he received an Evan scholarship at Northwestern, um, and you and all of your six brothers grew up caddying in Chicago at Indian Hill Country Club. Uh, I guess where I would love to start with you, thinking back to that caddy yard, do you have a lasting memory or something that, you know, just when, when I bring up the topic that, that you instantly flash back to? There's a couple of things that come to mind right away. And, and the first thing is, you know, that whole the yoke of, of subservience uh, that caddying, you know, lets you explore and uh, you know, that you don't want to be heard from this is caddying. It's not like pro jocks that you see at, at fancy clubs where they're, they know the course better than you ever will kind of thing. This is a course where the member knows it more than you do. And you know, whatever you're a 12 year old kid, you're a 13 year old kid. You just 
shut up and carry the bag. So there was a, a subservience thing that made you aspire to be better than a caddy. I, I think that was one of the things that we learned from it. But uh, the other thing that I'll always think about with caddy and Indian Hill was the great basketball games that we played before you caddy on the, on the caddy yard, you, you would get into a really great game and, you know, it was a big thing to get invited into the game. That was a, a step in your manhood. And, uh, then it was always great to go to the first tee soaking wet. And uh, the member would look at you like, oh, my, why? Why are you so wet? I, I would be curious, Tom. I don't know in your travels. I, I can remember the club where my parents had a membership where I grew up. There was a basketball court. And I, and I remember caddies playing basketball. Do you still encounter much much basketball in the in the caddy yard, Tom? No. In fact, it's it's. I love hearing Joel talk about that because – the only time I think I've seen it is uh, they do it in Caddyshack, right? And there, there's hoops going on. And now, I, you know, you understand the connection. We had no, uh, we had no hoops um, to play while I was waiting for a loop. And mostly, you know, we were kind of kept. First, we had like a barn. And then we were kept in like the bag room, which was in the basement, you know, out of sight, um, like mice in the basement. And... Uh, <laughs> But we know, I mean, that sounds really fun. I mean, I feel like you get to the point where you wouldn't want a caddy. Like you just kind of want to, I'd want to hang around and play hoops all day. I mean, and, and, and Randy slash Phil is a big hoops guy. I mean, you, you've, you've met him, I think last, you know, at the book launch, he's, he is big Randy for a reason. Um, you would have been all over that, Randy. Of course. No, I'm, I'm with you, especially if you're winning, right? You can't give up the court and go and go caddy. That's. You know, um, that that's one of the cardinal sins in, in pickup basketball is just abandoning the court. But um, and there was the hierarchy of, of the game. So the, the older guys, the better players were also usually the better caddies or more experienced caddies. So they'd get a loop and they'd have to leave. So that was you know, like I would get in when I was 12. All of a sudden I'd get into the big game uh, because there was an opening all of a sudden. Joel, do you remember any of those caddies, any of the personalities in the caddy yard? Oh, there's, there's a few, there's some for nefarious reasons that I can't really say. Uh, there was the Maloney brothers who were good basketball players and good caddies and the Finn brothers. There was about three of them, uh, that caddied in front of me that were all really good caddies. Uh, but there was, a, there was a caddy master that was literally dealing pounds of weed out of the cart shed and uh, <laughs> he'll, he'll remain nameless, but he was, he was a big impression as well on my, my career. Of course. I, I've always said, uh, and Tom, you've obviously grew up caddying and, and working at a golf course. My At that age, I, I guess in college, I got to, uh, to the golf course and I was working in the bag room. So I was more of a you know club cleaner, putting away the carts. Uh, but I, I took it and I, you know, reading this specific chapter in the book, you know, there, there's so much life truth and life wisdom to glean from just working at a golf course and hanging around the different socioeconomic people, um, anybody from the, the, the fellow caddies to, you know, some of the other folks working at a club all the way up to the members. You know, you touched on a little bit in the beginning, Joel, but, uh, you know, I, I got to imagine that was a very formative time for you. And do you remember like those, those hard life truths that, that you picked up through caddying? <laughs> Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, just people 
I met when I got to Loyal Academy in high school and I got there the first, you know, day or two guys that see you in the hall. I'm like, I know you, you just <laughs> carry my bag. And it's, you know, kind of like, yeah, well, I'm not going to be carrying your bag here, pal. Uh, so, you know, the rough streets of Wilmette, Illinois. But uh, you, there was, you know, there were guys that you looked for uh, and their parents. And then all of a sudden, you know, they were in the same class as you. Uh, you know, they're the O'Donnells, like the guy that Johnny O, uh, John O'Donnell, his uh, brothers and sisters were in my neighborhood. And you, you knew them. um you knew them from the golf course, but then all of a sudden you knew them socially. And it was kind of that little bit of that, oh, Murray's here. Hmm. <laughs> Strange. Uh, you know, just keep them away from the punch. Uh, but there, there was that social strata. And, uh, you know, we we were middle class in Wilmette, Illinois. We, you know, my mom was a widow and had uh, nine kids to bring up by herself. And we weren't, you know. We didn't have money to burn like some people in that neighborhood did. But uh, so, yeah, it was uh, you're always kind of just trying to see how good a time you could have uh, and, you know, how high up the ladder you could go and couldn't go kind of thing. Uh, there was a, there was a social thing. Yeah. And Tom, the, the place daddy was very, you know, high end, very yeah. waspy, very uh, everything it was in Caddyshack. Mm hmm. Tom, I heard a great story when I was out in Philadelphia for your book launch um, about the day. I'm, I'm going to tee up to tell the story, but about the day that um, it was too hot to caddy. Oh, can, my can, gosh. I know. I, it's too good of a story. Can you talk uh, about what happened and that reaction amongst your fellow caddies? And yeah. This was, I didn't, at the time, you know, didn't realize this story would stay with me through through my entire <laughs> life, make it to my 40-something year um and to be talking about it here because i was just a kid uh who didn't want a caddy uh at the time yeah it was it was we, I, I i remember we were in a really it was a hot streak like a lot of a string of really hot days and um gosh someone told me the story again uh last week when i stopped back up at rolling green <laughs> and i filled me in on more of the details but anyway we were in this like string of really hot days and i kind of i, I like wasn't around and, and finally came back one one day and, and my buddy mike cv was asking uh dude where have you been and i just told i just was honest with him i said well you know i got up and um i went out to get the mail and it was really hot so so i decided not to cat and i just went and i went inside and he's just looking at me like what's wrong with you and it's like dude I, it, it was hot and I had like a really long driveway and, and he, which, which wasn't the right answer. It wasn't the right follow-up. Paper um, was thick that day. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, because I'm all speaking to a room full of guys that, you know, may or may not have driveways. So I learned, you know, in that notion of that you were talking about the things you sort of learn, the life lessons, et cetera. Um, I guess this story, I learned my, my audience not to go in with the, because, because I was sincere <laughs> And that like, dude, by the time I got to the mailbox, I was like out of breath and sweating. So there was no way I was going to caddy. I thought that was a completely reasonable um, excuse to, to not caddy for a few days. But dude, there's a lot of hills of rolling green too, and it's a tough loop. So um, I was that, thinking about that when I was walking. Oh, I didn't walk. I rode a cart. But yeah, and you 
you were allowed to caddy at a place where your father was a member. Yeah, and so that wasn't always. I was gonna say that's case. a little unique. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of rare. At my, yeah, at yes. our club now they have some regulations about that, and especially you know, on hot days. I don't know hot days when the members' kids, for some reason, didn't show up. Well, it was like you know, I think it was like freshman year of college. I had two things to do that day. I had to get the mail, and I had to caddy. And uh, honestly, I mean, accomplished half of my day's goals really right. not that bad yeah um it was a it was a simpler time but yeah i could caddy where my dad was a member and i mentioned this in the book that like um there wasn't really any nepotism because my dad was a, he was an okay loop but like he wasn't a huge tipper like he just paid the standard <laughs> rate and so like no one was fighting over like to get his bag so so they tolerated me like I wasn't stealing a good loop. I wasn't, um, you know, I would actually, if I was going to caddy, I would get there and actually wait with people. That was my favorite part of being a caddy was, was sitting around and listening to stories. When I think about it, like I got so much from, I mean, caddying taught me everything I needed to know in life. It taught me uh, um, smoking, drinking, <laughs> women, uh, gambling, and how golf. How to play cards, I was going to say. To play, yeah uh golf and how to tell stories right and i would never the best stories still in all the places i've traveled or classes i've been in or whatever the best stories i ever knew and best storytellers i've ever known were the caddies at, at rolling green um and, and, and some of the best dirty jokes i ever heard i mean there's still <laughs> some who don't understand what that i first heard when i was like 11 <laughs> I, I still don't get it like whatever that means it's filthy but mm, i don't even know i don't want to know exactly yeah. so it's essential stuff but um yeah so my, my brother cool. brian used to say that uh he would make more money playing hearts than he would caddying so he just yeah. stopped caddying he would just play cards the whole time i could i could see that who was still looping when you were like 12 years old were any of your brothers in the, in the basketball game or ahead of you looping i mean there's a pretty wide range of, of ages through the uh, no because um, Andy and Johnny didn't really loop as much as uh, they tell people they did. Um, Andy was always a cook and Johnny was always a painter, house painter. Um, so yeah, there was, you know, Billy was the last looper and he's 12 years older than me. So yeah. he wasn't exactly hanging around when he was on the second city stage. Uh, he wasn't so, catching loops between shows. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a quick one. None of my family were around at that point. I was, I was on my own. How, this is non-golf related, Joel, but something I'm I'm curious about. How, how did you, and not all of your brothers, but um, a, a number of you guys, what what led you to to show business and comedy and and performing? Well, I always say lack of direction. Uh, that's how you become an actor. <laughs> you, you seek direction. But um, I, you know, my brother Brian was a peanut broker. He had come back from St. Mary's and uh, all of a sudden my father died uh, very surprisingly. He was 46 years old. And my brother Brian went over to the Second City and uh, took a class because it was something he had always wanted to do. And he sat down in a class and he met this guy that he thought was pretty funny and smart. And uh Turns out the guy was Harold Ramis and they were friends for the next 44 years or something like that till Harold passed. And, um, you know, he, he got in at a perfect time with Harold Ramis and Belushi and Joe Flaherty and uh, 
you know, later worked with Gilda up in Canada and stuff like that. But um, Brian got into it, but the Second City always had this deal where uh, siblings drank free. So Billy used to go watch Brian all the time and drink for free and, you know, talk about your cheap date. And uh, after a while, they said, well, you know, maybe you should uh, get in a class and you should be in a company. And uh, he got in the touring company. And um, I came along like a, a dozen years later or something like that. And I was literally training to drive a cab at that point. I was thinking about joining the Air Force. I mean, I was really in a bad spot. And uh, I met a guy in Italy who had an interest in Second City, Dave Pasquese is one of the best improvisers in the country. And um, we came back from Rome where we were roommates in Italy for a year. And uh, a guy named Chris Barnes, who was my brother Johnny's roommate, said Del Close, who was the improv guru that taught Brian and Billy, was taking classes again and, and teaching. And so we went and sat in on a class and we, we got into it. But how did we all get in that direction? Um, you know, we always say that my, my dad was a really slow eater and there were 11 people at the table and uh, we'd all eat in about a minute and a half and he'd eat in 45 minutes. So the last 43 minutes, we're trying to get him to laugh with food in his mouth and try to, you know, make him pass <laughs> milk out his nose or whatever. Um, so, and you learn a lot about timing and uh, holding back and, you know, paying off uh, in a situation like that. And, uh, if you speak too much, then people don't listen to you again. You know, so a lot of that might have led to it, or we just were all lucky. I don't know. Well, and that's interesting. That I just want to grab on that last part you said about timing and not speaking too much. Maybe I feel like there's going back to what you said initially about caddying. Uh, the best caddies have that gift of saying the right thing at the right time. Yeah, just dry as a bone too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so that's. Uh, Told Tom, we played Ardglass, which is the first opening hole at Ardglass in Northern Ireland. You've got a huge crevasse and a, a, the ocean on your left. And the, the pro came out and said, what do we say, boys? And uh, the caddies look at each other and like, oh, you've got all of Ireland on your right. Don't go left. <laughs> and, uh, it was just kind of perfect. Like, less is more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's circle back, uh, speaking specifically about Canal Shores, which is the course profiled um, in the first half of the book, obviously meant a lot to your family, Joel, um, and I know to, your, to you personally. I, I found it really fun uh, how your relationship with the course changed throughout your years. You know, you, you talk about sneaking on to play. Uh, when you were young to eventually, you know, you realize you could find golf balls and, and barter with the the starter to let you on. And and now, you know, you host an annual charity tournament there. I, I just think that's, that's a pretty, you know, for lack of a better term, that's a pretty damn cool circle life there. Um, is that something you reflect upon and like how this one course has, has been a constant in your life? Well, we laugh a lot in the fact that the Peter Jans municipal golf course uh, which was a parcel that was acquired by Peter Jans a hundred years ago, uh, was named Canal Shores because that was a derogatory term that the Murray brothers used for the course. I mean, that was what we nicknamed it. <laughs> it wasn't a, a loving term. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's a drainage canal full of carp and uh, sewage. It's, it's not like it's a, a place you can go canoeing, although people do row crew in it now, which kind of cracks me up. Um, 
But Billy also mowed lawns there at first. He was an assistant groundskeeper, uh, which Carl Spackler was. And then later he ran the, the snack shack on what is now uh, the ninth slash second hole. Uh, there's an intersection there. But, um, you know, so that came full circle where, you know, when I was first sneaking on, uh, Billy worked there and I didn't feel like I would really get beat up if I got caught. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a place you could ride your bike to. And, uh, you know, it was a place at night you could make out at. And there's a place you could watch the fireworks on the 4th of July from. And, uh, you know, it was a, a multi-purpose area. Not a good golf course, but um, like the Ricketts family that owned the Cubs moved into the neighborhood. And they put a bunch of money into it and got a real superintendent. This guy, Tony, is a great guy. Uh, and the course is in good shape. I don't know how it was when you were there, Tom, but uh, it's better every time I've been there. They actually have like church rope uh, bunkers and stuff now, like <laughs> homages to different courses. And uh, Yeah. Well, I was there with, we, we played together, Joel. You'll, you'll remember. I just, I just don't remember what shape it was in <laughs> on that day when you and I were there. I don't like, I don't know how... What, how your hair was that day, if it was working or not. I, I bet you remember that you beat him, though, right, right, Joel? I, I think you you beat him quite handily. Yeah. I uh, I think he admitted that in the book. Yes. Uh, I think I that did. course is very well suited to um, – well, you had a lot of local knowledge, a lot of history there. and you Sometimes just you were... just want to top the ball. You don't really <laughs> want to hit it right because uh, if you hit yeah. it right, you, you'll bounce on and over. It's better to just miss hit it and top it and, and roll it most of the way in the green and then maybe put it from there. Yeah, you were, you were very crafty around there with your like fours and five irons and I was trying to do stupid things and well, I, uh, I was dead money from the start. Yeah. No, you played, you played well, that was a lot of fun. I mean, that place was, it was like that part of the book in Chicago, you know, I'm trying to play all these open venues and I wanted to make sure that I fit in, that I played somewhere that, you know, was accessible yeah, somewhere that were regular, regular. And that is that VFW bar. I know you don't drink uh, anymore, but uh, that VFW bar is one of the best bars I've ever been to. They've got a great pizza and pizza uh, the, was the characters, delicious. the old timers that used to bartend there were just so, you know, Chicago in your face. And why are you here? Why are you here? Like, oh, well, you're, I didn't realize it was esoteric. Let me. <laughs> well, you were holding, when I, I remember leaving that day, you were holding court up in the VFW. I don't, you might have, uh, you were very popular, you know, a local I just know a lot about return home. And... I really wasn't in any, but I, I know a lot about them. So I, sometimes I can fly. <laughs> Tom, on, on Canal Shores, how how unique is a place like Canal Shores? I mean, you've yeah. now have newfound perspective on American golf. Like, in, in my opinion, a place like Canal Shores is really the lifeblood of of golf, and and I, I think it's a place like that is what will really create lifelong golfers. Yeah. And so, I don't know if. It'd be great if every town or, you know, everybody had access to a place like that. But I, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are with how unique of a place I, it is. Yeah, I agree. It is a lifeblood of kind of um, experience and you wish every place had it. Um, but the issue is, as you said, it is so unique. So in all my travels, it's the only place I've encountered that's quite like it. I mean, so 
you might draw a parallel to so just to think about a golf course that actually winds through um a semi-urban setting um that i i don't know any any other place like it where you're crossing the street and going over subway tracks and or the l's there or um or you're going past the fire station on your way to the next t like that i i I never experienced that elsewhere. Now, I, yeah, there's downtown golf in other cities for sure, but they would be sort of more like a park experience. I mean, Canal Shores winds literally through the neighborhood, uh, through people's backyards, um, where, you know, like as Joel, you noted on the first tee that you can slice one into the into the hospital. Um, and so like that, that's totally different. Winter Park would be the closest kind of feeling in terms of layout, but winter park is a different kind of neighborhood like down in orlando mm -hmm. i mean that's a golf course where you feel like oh i'm actually golfing through a neighborhood this is really cool but that's a pretty high-end you know floridian kind of experience and not you know the, the gritty and when you talk about the future of golf um they they've got some things in mind unlike i have three sons and they don't play all the time because they think you know four or five hours how am i going to go that long without looking at my phone um <laughs> But Canal Shores has it set up and you could play the Metro loop where you could play a loop of like nine holes or, or something like that. And then there's another one where you can play five holes and get back to, you know, where you started kind of thing. So it's, it's got that in mind of, well, let's make it more accessible even. And uh, I think that's kind of cool. But uh, yeah, you above, below the subway, the, you know, the uh, elevated tracks and uh literally going down the sidewalk in a golf cart. The first time I ever played in a golf cart, we were just laughing hysterically. We could not believe that this actually <laughs> was happening to us. And, uh, but, you know, down a sidewalk cross on the crosswalk, uh, at the corner of, you know, central and whatever. And the first hole, the old first hole, which is now the third hole, because they decided to let you warm up two holes used to be people would get up and slice it right into the rotunda the emergency room entrance to Evanston Hospital, and it would bounce around with like people being taken out of ambulances. And it was, but uh, figured it out. But I, I love that they are trying to bring more people in, and they're also doing stuff now where they're doing these concerts. We saw Mavis Staples there a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, Emmy Lou Harris is playing with Los Lobos. Uh, there's a whole bunch of bands this summer, and since people got hit to them. They're, they're on the first, second hole. They, they set up a stage. Um, they're all sold out immediately now because it's just such wow. a great thing to be out there. And, uh, you know, another new experience you can experience on the Canal Shores. Yeah. Um, okay, Joel, I, I have to ask you, and if, if you don't want to talk about it, I, I can at least say I asked. Uh, in the book, Joel, you're quoted as saying um, when you're talking about Bill and how he worked at the snack shack and being somewhat infamously late arriving. Uh, Tom quotes you as saying there was a certain clientele that wore dingo boots and cowboy hats that used to hang out with him and laugh. Who knows what went on there? I do, but I'm not going to say right now. I, I certainly don't expect you to spill all the beans, but is there maybe a story or two that you could expand uh, some of the things you remember and, and witness there? I, uh, I, I can't vouch for any of that, but it was some of the same guys. <laughs> They used to come to the cart shed when I was a caddy and would see the caddy master. And it was the same kind of dingo boot look. Like 
you're not going to loop in those shoes, are you? Uh, but it was, it was the same guys that would show up you know, looking for a hot dog at 1.30 in the afternoon uh, at Canal Shores. But yeah, some of the hot dogs were a lot more expensive than, than the others. Some were like $35 more than the others. So I, I don't know what went on. I got you. I got you. Um, let me, this is, this is a kind of a non sequitur, um, but, but I'm curious to, to hear your response. Um, obviously you and your family, uh, Caddyshack means a ton and it, you know, is well-deserved. It's, it's kept its influence and popularity in the game of golf. How do you take people's love and enthusiasm for Caddyshack? Do you ever get, I, I'm sure you must be inundated with people quoting lines and telling you their favorite scenes, um, does it ever, does it ever get old? Does it ever, how, how, how do you handle that aspect of it? Well, I, I don't have to deal with it. I wasn't in the movie or anything. Uh, you know, Brian has done very well off it. We've all done well off of getting, uh, but, um, I've played with, there was a place called the Malibu country club up in the Hills above Malibu off of Canaan dune there. And it was famous for, you could hear five holes away from each other. And there was an echo and kind of thing. But playing with Bill and Brian in Malibu and on every single backswing, somebody was doing a line from the movie that, you know, Brian wrote, Billy said, and they didn't know they'd be two, three holes away. They didn't know that those two guys were right over here. And uh, I just kind of kept laughing as, you know, they would chunk one, you know, in the lumber yard. <laughs> and, yeah, just leave me alone. Uh, so, They've had to deal with it. I haven't had to at all. Uh, okay. But it does make me laugh when it, when it gets to them. Yeah. That's yeah. Um, all your brothers are playing their best golf. Who wins uh, a, man, a Murray family golf tournament? I don't know. It should be me. I, I, I've been playing poorly of late. i got to figure out what's going on. I, I think i got to come and, and start over. And uh, I used to say, like, expensive sports, like, you know, skiing, scuba diving, you know, paratrooping you should take lessons and I, I maybe i should get back to some lessons or something but uh i should be winning these things but bill's always been a good golfer my brother ed who passed was was the best he was a scratch golfer um brian's got a very you know like uh the squire uh he, he's got a just a beautiful swing and it's very small and you know compact uh and a great chipper and putter uh andy lives in florida he should be good and Johnny is everybody's decided is the worst. So at least we know that, but Billy and I are, are a pretty good match and Brian's pretty good. Uh, and Andy's, you know, but poor Tom Coyne is going to have to go to Ireland with them all and see how, how bad we all really are. Well, that's yeah. what I was, I was going to say, Tom, how would you describe uh, Joel's game? I'd say strong quite strong. Um, no, I mean, we spent a couple days recently playing some golf. You played well. We, uh, not to name drop, but the day after the book launch, we um, we did go over across the bridge to uh, to Pine Valley, and that was a lot of fun. And and you played well, dude. I remember it was a little was, intimidating in the fact that I was playing with Tom, who made a run at being a pro for a while, mm. uh, the four-time club champion, uh, yeah, Billy McGinnis, uh, and four-time club champion there at Pine Valley and, and uh, another lad who was probably about a three or a four or something. He was pretty good. Maybe not that good, but uh, I was so obviously the, the weakest link. It was, it was a little distressing and you know, you'd get done with a hole and you'd look back 
and there'd be like 61 bunkers and you go, I bogeyed it. It wasn't that bad. Uh, just you guys were all on in two and two putted, but I had an adventure. I, I, I was in couple, two traps. You had uh, a couple adventures, but I think for the first time, like you said, Pine Valley is really intimidating. It took me many trips and not that I've been there again, not name dropping how many times I've been there, but <laughs> it took a few times. This is like, sounds like me talking about the, the mail again. Um, well, the second hole, uh, that, that's when I was in kind of like just sticker shock. The uh, second hole, I hit a good drive in the fairway. And my second shot has got to be like 60 yards up and 190 yards long. And between the two of us is 40 bunkers. And I'm like, this, this is not going to happen. And somehow I got on the green. And uh, That's right. Yeah, I did par the second one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that. It, was a, yeah. it was solid. It was solid. Yeah, you play um, – Brian and uh, has a beautiful swing, you know, old school reversey, like re like long languid, like kind of like Bill swing is 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 that like like old school. Um, actually, and you do a little bit too, Joel. You, you, your swings are are there's a hereditary element there for sure. Good. Well, we uh, all run the same too, so I don't know. There's something wrong in our spines or something, but yeah, we all run in the same kind of don't use our arms kind of way. <laughs> That's next, the, uh, the uh, foot race, maybe more in Ireland. <laughs> Joel, uh, speaking of Chicago, if, if I were to say you could play anywhere in Chicago tomorrow, what course would you pick? Uh, I, I think it's in the book. Um, but I, I think Shore Acres is one of the prettiest courses in the world. Um, it's up in Lake Forest. And uh, you go there in autumn, it's – it's just stunningly gorgeous. And uh, there's something about it that suits my eye that every time I go there, I play well too. Uh, you have courses like that where you just, I don't know why, but I, I play well here. Yes. Uh, that, that's one of them. And uh, I could play that course every day for the rest of my life. So there's the answer to that question. It's hmm. in the book as the one that I didn't get to actually. <laughs> um, so it's it does I'm all glad these... I didn't lie that I read the whole book. <laughs> I know, right? I would have busted you. The um because between doing okay, because there's a lot of US open venues in Chicago, the most of any city. And then so doing that, and then I wanted to see Downers Grove because that's sort of where golf starts in Chicago, and wanted to do Canal Shores, and that was like all I and and Shore Acres is kind of a it's a tough get. I've gotten some invitations now since people have said, I can't believe you didn't go to Shore Acres. Um I want to see it, man. That's that's the one. Well, we should go some out. I'm in. Oh, we're saying three of us now, right? We. we <laughs> have you been host. to Shorekers, Randy? <laughs> no, I've I, no, I've never. Uh -uh. Well, I know what Randy is doing, Joel. So Joel, depending on his wife's birthday, is going to join me for the duel in August. Oh, nice. Which you did, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Do that last year or two years ago? A couple years ago. Yep. Yeah. Up at Forest you're, Dunes. You, yeah, yeah Forest Dunes. And you guys are actually, I think you're going to be there in July, aren't you? Uh, we are doing the one on July 31st. Yep. Uh, so the one you asked me to is like August 31st. Right? August 31st. Yeah. But okay. you said, you're, I, I penciled, you're like, you're, you're, you're more than penciled in. You're tight in. Penciled? Or something. I don't know. But you'll, you'll love that. that. That's a real treat. I was, I was blown away. It's a great event. Obviously, very, I think a very cool concept. I think Doak did a great job with the loop and 
to be able to play them both on the same day, yeah. I think you get an even better appreciation for, you know, you, you go, you go around it one way in the morning, you have lunch and then to be able to get to go around it the other way in the afternoon and see like, Oh my God, how, yeah. How, what he had to do and the creativity that it, that it takes to build a course like that. Um, that, that'll be a real treat. I'm, I'm glad you'll get up there. There's a lot of great golf in Michigan. Boy, it, it's, it's really stunning. You get up by Harbor Springs up that way. There's, five, six great courses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's, uh, let's piss some people off in Chicago. Uh, what, what's the most overrated track in Chicago? <laughs> the most overrated track in Chicago. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not one of those guys that like remembers every hole and every shot they, they took when they play a course. Uh, I think sometimes that's, for me, that's a mark of if a course just doesn't do it for me, or maybe the inverse. If I can remember every shot in every hole, I think it's a course. What that says to me is it's a course that really um, has made an impression on me. Cause I'm like you, some people yeah. can just remember every hole and intricate details and I cannot, but I, I feel like for those courses that I can, those are obviously the ones that, you know, have, have made an impression on me. Yeah. Most overrated. That's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to buy you some time. Come on, Tom. Do you have one? I mean, we can, we can make Tom answer it. No, dude, I don't want any more heat. I got a book out. I don't need any more heat. Um, you know, I already hear from people say, why didn't you, why is it my course in the book? Or why were you nicer about, yeah, got it. You didn't give me enough burger dogs in the back of the book in your ratings. (laughs) So, um, no, I'm, I'm trying to stay in everybody's everybody's. And I I don't get invited to that many of them. I'm usually in town for a short while and you know, you can't play that many of them. Uh, I don't know. I still want to, there's still a, a few that I haven't gotten to. Chicago Country Club is one of them. I've, I've never gotten to play. Uh, I got to play Medina. That was pretty great. Uh, is that saying it's not that overrated? That well, overrated? If, if people could see your face right now, I think that would answer the question. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um uh, Joel, you've you've. Uh, I'm curious. Let's go on the opposite spectrum. Uh, you said Shore Acres in Chicago, and maybe that's your answer for this. But what's what's the favorite course you've ever played anywhere? Oh, um, I when I was on Dharma and Greg um, two years in a row, Thomas Gibson and I got invited to go play uh, Augusta National, and uh, that's in my top three. Um, I really love playing uh, Farm Neck on Martha's Vineyard. I don't know if you ever played that one. No. But that's another one that it just, for some reason, suits my eye, my game, and I always play well there. And, uh, you know, that's a weird one. Would you rather play Augusta or Farm Neck? Well, uh, you get outside of the gates of Augusta, you're, you're basically, you know, at a car dealership. Uh, but, you know, Farm Neck, you're on Martha's Vineyard, and it's quite beautiful. Um, I think well, you'd still want to play Augusta, but uh, that one's up there. Um, oh no, that's that's I, I will take it. Uh, you know, a very controversial choice there, but but we'll accept that. And in <laughs> the middle you... of it, you're going along, and all of a sudden there's a Yankees flag and a New York Knicks flag, and you're like, "Who's got a house in the middle of the golf course on Martha's Vineyard?" It's Spike Lee's joint. Oh, nice. Yeah, oh, that very was cool. Real... So his it's movies have done better than you think. Well, let me, this is a good, good segue, Joel, uh, besides fitting your eye, what, 
what qualities, and I'll preface this by saying, you know, one of the recurring themes I really liked about Tom's book, he asked a number of people to, you know, voice the qualities that make a great American golf course. I'm curious how you would answer that. Well, great American. I'm a big fan of uh, when you take a shot, there's dirt underneath it as compared to sand. Um, so that, that alienates a good portion of the country. It gets rid of your Arizona, your, much of your Florida, uh, a lot of desert courses in Palm Springs and whatnot, uh, a lot of California. But I, you know, I like to take a swing and see black dirt underneath. That's just me. Uh, so that, that's a prerequisite for a great American. Um, I like deciduous trees. I think they, uh, they stop a ball better than uh, pines or uh, palms. I, I, I think you hit a, a leaf on a deciduous tree, it's dropping. And I, I, I think that's, you know, that's their, their job on the course is to, to not let you through. Um, I like good sand, not too, too light. I don't want it white that I'm going to get sunburned when I go into bunker. I want a, a little bit of coarseness to it, a little, little color. Um, I think that makes a great American course. You know, you, where, where is the sand from? It's not from the world we live in. Where did this come from? You know, you play like Bel Air Country Club in LA. This sand isn't even from this island that we're on here. You know, this is not even from North America. Where the hell did you get this? Uh, so I think the sand should be a little bit indigenous. Uh, and, you know, it shouldn't have Kikuya grass. That's that's the other rule. I, I love it. That's that's beautiful. Um, Joe, what are you yeah, up to Joe, next? What are you up yeah, to next? very curious. Well, I just I played in Kevin Rahm's golf tournament at St. Augustine, where we have the Murray Brothers Caddyshack every year, and we've been driving through uh, Mobile, Alabama, and New, New Orleans, and now we're in the Mississippi, and we're going to go up to Greenville, Mississippi, uh, to play in Steve Azar, singer songwriter, has another tournament, and uh, but uh, what I was going to say is uh, I've got a show called Heels that's going to be on the Stars Network August 15th and has nothing to do with golf. It's about wrestling and it's a, a small market wrestling league in Duffy, Georgia. And it's, I think it's going to be really good. Uh, it's, you were talking about play, that? It sounded great. Uh, my wife and I play the sponsors of the league. Uh, uh, we were actually working together. So we were double dipping during COVID and uh, what a blessing to two paychecks when nobody was working. So it was good. And the show, I, I did some ADR on it the other day and the, the show looks fantastic. Is, is I know wrestling? what ADR is. Do you know what ADR is, Randy? Uh, no, not at all. Additional dialogue recording, recording, right? Or mm. digital? Oh, yeah. Yeah, where you have to do your lines again. I would thought that was like a magic. That'd be really hard to do, to dub up your- well, They uh, give you three beeps and then you got to say your line exactly like you said it then and match your mouth. Yeah, you got to match the mouth. And that's why some, yeah, when you're watching a show and you're like, why did his mouth just move funny? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Huh. Bad ADR. Um, is wrestling. Show, sounds is, awesome. Yeah. I, I was going to say, is wrestling, uh, is that a world that you know about? Or is that. We were big wrestling fans uh, growing up. It was, you know, it was either the mass for shut-ins on Sunday morning before cartoons are on, but then you had like old school wrestling on. Uh, the UHF channels, VHF, UHF, uh, like Baron Von Roschke and uh, the B Crusher and the Bruiser, you know, uh, crazy wrestling. Uh, it was on early in the morning on Sundays and used to watch it. But 
uh, it, it's a cool show. It's, it's got, you know, sibling rivalry. There's, you know, random naked girls. There's uh, trucks. There's some music. There's, there's a lot of stuff there. I think America's going to love it. Nice. Nice. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, Stars Network, you said. And, and when does it premiere? August 15th. August 15th. Wonderful. Um, all right. I, Joel, I think with that, I will, I will let you go. I will let you enjoy everything that Mississippi has to offer, including the heat, the humidity. And the uh, Buffalo Wild Wings. And, and the, yeah, and the Buffalo Wild and the Buffalo Wild Wings. Where's your wife, Joel? Is she already over there? She's always, <laughs> I made her wait in the lobby. Uh, no, she's, she's right over here. I'm, I'm not going to show her because she hit me. Okay. Well, we'll see her on the show. Well, fantastic. Um, thank you so much. Uh, enjoy the loop up in Michigan this August. And um, yeah, I, I just from me personally, I, I really enjoyed reading about Canal Shores and your history there. And I appreciate you taking the time this evening and, and joining us. Trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who